Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a founder that is going to really share a lot with us about culture, about cybersecurity, uh, about you know going from investment banking to uh, leverage buyouts to really like going out and, and and starting your own business and raising money, you know, like with just a, a PowerPoint, just an idea. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our, our guest today, Fred Knight. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alondra. So originally born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. So how was life uh, growing up there? Uh, I think it was great. Uh, Brooklyn was a, a fantastic time. My parents bought a house there in the in the seventies, um, and um, still live in that same home today. And I thought it was a, a wonderful experience. Got to experience the city. I did have a little bit of that, you know, how could anyone grow up anywhere else mindset? I think that most New Yorkers have. Um, but it was um, it was fun to be able to get out there and go to Statue of Liberty, Empire State Building, et cetera, um, as, as we were growing up. And what a, what a difference uh, Brooklyn has experienced over the years, because before, I, I guess, like, not even not even a long time ago, like 10 years ago, you could get, like, a townhouse for, like, 300000 and now those go up for, like, $2 million. Yeah, no, it was, um, my, my father was, uh, I thought I was pretty impressed, you know, and as he looked, they, he worked uh, as a lawyer in, on Wall Street. And as he looked, okay, we could live in Connecticut, New Jersey, and elsewhere, or I could commute for five minutes from Brooklyn, um, and that was kind of pretty easy. But it was a it was a different neighborhood back then. Much of mom and pop type stores, very friendly, actually really good community. And it is, you know, it's evolved a bit now. You have higher end restaurants and art galleries and a variety of other things on the block that I grew up on. But it's um, it's still a really neat community just over the bridge. And then you went to boarding school. You know, I, I really, you know, obviously in Europe where I'm from, you know, it's especially like in the UK, for example, going to boarding school is a, is a big thing. But here in New Yorkers, you know, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not like the usual thing. So can you tell us, you know, like what was the idea behind boarding school? A, a lot of it uh, came down to um, ideally athletics. I, um, you know, in, in Brooklyn, it was either... Uh, honestly, playing basketball or squash, which we had actually a great facility. I ended up playing a fair amount of squash. I am basically incompetent at basketball. So that kind of took that off the stage there. Um, and my parents wanted me to get a chance to play a lot more sports. So I got out and uh, went to a school in Connecticut and was able to play, you know, uh, football, was able to play soccer, 
uh, experimented with lacrosse and a variety of others. And it was just a whole new world for me. It was wonderful uh, to get out there. And one of the things that I also experienced, you know, from it's really interesting because the way that you grow up and all these different experiences really shape who you are and also the type of entrepreneur that you're going to be, too. No? So I guess, you know, it's especially for those that go and, and do boarding school, you know, especially at a young age, they really develop that sense of independence and, and, and they are really tough, especially mentally. So how did that shape you? No, I think it definitely helped and it it. it teaches you more personal accountability at an early age in that it's, you know, you're now there. It's no longer mom or dad doing this for you. And it's, you have to get uh, set up on your room or whatever it is in a, uh, at the school. And I think that's definitely stayed with me, that element of, you know, I make my own decisions. I bear the consequences of my own decisions versus blaming others or that's in that sense. So I think it's an incredibly important component and it's a, it's a harder lesson. I wouldn't say that every day was glorious, right? You kind of, you learn some things, some, uh, along the way, but then it makes it much better. And I will tell you, I had a much better college experience as a result of that, because I went in, uh, having gone through the homesickness or whatever you want to call it in the, uh, in a couple of years in, in high school. And I was now much more comfortable, uh, as a young adult. And the love for resolving problems for engineering, like how did you come up with the idea of, hey, I'm going to go to Princeton and I'm going to do engineering? Um, well, it, it was uh, interestingly, I would say the solving problems, a lot comes from my mother, uh, an extraordinarily resourceful woman. Like um, we, it was never, oh, okay, that's broken. Let's move on. It was, let's take it apart and figure out why it works. So early on when I was maybe 10 years old, I would sit down with her and you know, we'd rewire a lamp or reupholster a chair um, or, you know, work through. We actually, uh, my parents put the flooring in on their house in, in, in Brooklyn, uh, having no idea how to do that. And there was no internet <laughs> back then to do so. <laughs> no, before. you wow. Yeah. You know, and so I'm, I'm sure there's still some issues that remain from that. But, you know, it was a matter of, you know, figuring things out and understanding how they work. And I, I love that. Even to this day, my, my son bought something the other day. Um, that was a kind of a cheap buzzer tool from China and he dropped it once and sure enough, it broke. And so he and I took it apart and figured out, okay, here's how this broke and that's separate. And it's just, it's more fun to do it that way. Now that led to an engineering problem solving mindset. And I was always attracted to those types of, uh, um, I guess subjects. So why do you think that perhaps there were going to be some interesting problems to, to resolve in investment banking? Because that's, that's the direction that you took after, after graduating. Yeah, it was interesting. It was a bit of the financial modeling. So my undergrad at, at Princeton was a, um, it was called engineering and management systems, which was really focused on the intersection between engineering, problem solving, optimization approaches, and microeconomics. And so kind of how do you optimize financial um, deployments and such. And so a lot of what I did, you know, I built or, or rebuilt effectively the M&A model that Merrill Lynch used for bank mergers and things, because I just it was fun to build that out. I was one of those nerdy guys who loved Excel uh, early on and uh, was able to build a lot there. And I think that was that was exciting for me, kind of modeling out what you could do financially. What would happen if this bank bought this bank? What would happen if you did this divestiture or some of that sort? And that was quite interesting to me. So I guess, uh, you know, in investment banking, you really get to to see the numbers of, of companies, you know, and great performers, really bad performers, you know, companies that have potential, companies that don't. Any any kind of like uh, highlights or or insights that you got from this experience? You know, n nothing earth shattering in that sense. I, I do see it was remarkable how 
kind of EPS and quarterly focused companies were and making decisions that we would, you know, behind closed doors, have conversations with a CEO and say, look, this isn't the right strategic thing for the company, but I, I can't miss earnings this quarter and things like that. And that was telling for me of like, wow, that, that doesn't sound good. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I won't pretend to have nearly enough experience or exposure, uh, to be able to pass full judgment on those situations. But that was, it was interesting that actually drove me to look at what can you do in the private markets a bit. And kind of the next step I took there into kind of the leverage, um, finance world was, uh, and, and LBOs and such was, it was part of that. So why, why did you go, you know, leave Merrill Lynch and, and then go at it, you know, with leverage buyouts, what, what really caught your eye and, and the interest on that? So I think the uh, the company I joined right after Merrill was a company called Holberg Industries. It was actually a holding company um, for, so while not a typical LBO firm, it basically had two portfolio companies that were growing uh, through highly financed um, acquisition strategies. And so one was a food service distribution company and one a parking facilities operator. Not the most sexy industries, but man, incredible opportunities there to really build economies of scale. And um, that was attractive to me. It was the, the element of going and building a company and taking a variety of smaller organizations and building something bigger and more impactful uh, as a result of that. And the opportunity at a small firm like Holberg was I was hands-on traveling the country uh, with, the, with the CEO there uh, and really working through that strategy with him. That's really interesting. Like the, you know, like the roll-ups, for example, you know, that, that you were also exposed to at this time. You know, like when you really get to to have some cash and then you just buy like a like a bunch of people and then you just unite that into one, you know, that's a, a very interesting way rather than starting from scratch. So so what did you learn from 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 seeing this type of strategy? Well, one of the things that was was interesting and, and um if you if you have time to look up some of the, the one of the bigger companies we had from Holberg, a company called Amerisurf, was actually a, a spectacular bankruptcy. So it was an interesting learning through that. Um and uh, I mean, it was a you know ten billion revenue company. This was not a small um, organization. And um, and one of the things I realized through that was, you know, if you have an aggressive integration strategy or these kind of innovative concepts, nothing ever goes fully according to plan. Um, and you need to be well capitalized and ability to absorb that those disruptions uh, along the way. Otherwise, uh, you could be subjected to unfortunately bankruptcy, like Marisur, where they ended up selling. Uh, you know, the assets for pennies on the dollar, um, if they'd actually been fully capitalized and had the cash to ride through that bump, if you will, and the kind of integration, it could still be a highly profitable company today. And so that was a, a very telling lesson. I mean, it's actually influenced how I've raised capital at CyberGRX uh, today in just, you know, potentially raising ahead of need just to make sure we have that cap- capacity to uh, survive through bumps or unpredictable components that might come up. And we'll touch on that in, in just a little bit. So after, you know, all of this experience doing the leverage you know, roll-up uh, strategies and, and, and the leverage buyouts and, and, and so forth, you decide to do the MBA. And this is kind of like your uh, bridge towards, you know, a change of, of strategy or, or a change of perspective on, on your professional path. And you joined McKinsey and you were actually there for, for seven years. Now, one of the things that I uh, keep coming across on entrepreneurs that I that I meet, entrepreneurs that also come on the show, is that when they do consulting, they really get a good feel and a good grasp on how to grab really big problems and really break them down into really small problems and really tackling those uh, at that point. So, so I guess what 
what have you learned from doing that? And, and what is the real value that like a firm like McKinsey can really bring you as you are thinking about tackling your entrepreneurial journey? No, I think, I think you've, you've captured a bit of it right there. Um, my, my decision to go back to, uh, to business school really stemmed from I was now put in a position to help dictate the strategy for these organizations and quickly realized I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. I was literally you know, reading a research report and said, okay, this is what you know, Goldman Sachs says we should be doing. And I was like, that, that seems like a terrible approach to strategy. So um, went, uh, went back to business school. And I think what, hap- or what I got from that was a, a great conceptual understanding, think of like Porter's Five Forces type concepts of, okay, this is how you can frame it up. And that was the first time I'd even heard of half of that stuff. And I come from a very technical modeling background uh, from the banking world. And now I was like, okay, let me understand. This is how you think about building a sustainable competitive advantage, et cetera. Going to McKinsey was an opportunity then to take that concept or that theory and try and put it into practice and say, okay, I'm going to work with a company to help develop a new product line, or I'm going to help a company think through a rationalization of a certain, uh, you know, uh, cost savings or whatever it happens to be. And, um, and it was really an incredible opportunity to see that concept doesn't always stand up in the, the face of reality that you need to work through. Okay, here are the little nuances, the different components. And the tools that a place like McKinsey or Bain, BCG, you name it, will provide you are fantastic structured problem-solving approaches that help you know, distill problems down to exactly, as you said, kind of manageable pieces. You'll have kind of decision tree type pieces or hypothesis trees. And it really is simple. If you say, okay, let me lay out all the facts here. Now let me put these together. Now, what happens if this goes here? What happens if this goes here? What are the key dependencies? And kind of unpacking and looking at it from that perspective. Um, one makes it easier to understand, but two makes it easier to explain. Uh, and that's one of the key things that McKinsey's very good at is helping simplify complex problems and explaining them to a board or uh, an executive team. Say, here's why this problem looks like this. Here's why you need to go this direction. And in many cases, the answer then becomes obvious when you strip away all the unnecessary components and say, oh, these are the key factors that are really driving that. One thing, Fred, here that, that really comes to mind, and especially given the fact that we have all these entrepreneurs that are probably uh, listening uh, right now, you know, I, I think it would be interesting, you know, like maybe you can walk us through an example of how you go about resolving a specific problem. You know, like we can just like make up whatever problem. How would you go about, you know, tackling it? Yeah, I mean, I think the... The key is really, and I was saying, diagnosing or breaking down what are the factors that are driving a certain circumstance. So if you have a problem or you have an issue or you have a market you want to enter, it's really saying, okay, what, what drives behavior? What drives this? What's causing this problem? Um, and too many people just try and solve the symptoms you know, and say, okay, well, we'll put a Band-Aid on this or whatever it is, or we'll go left instead of right. But instead, like, what's that root cause? Why is that actually happening? What is driving that behavior? What will actually drive future behaviors. And so taking a given, uh, you know, I, I can apply it in, in, in CyberGRX as we look at, you know, why are people, you know, continuing to move forward doing an, a, an assessment of companies with a antiquated spreadsheet? That makes no sense. But they actually, it's something that's been established in the company and, and it's quote unquote safe. And this is a risk practitioner that may not want to take a risk. So it's safe, even though they know it's not the best path, it's safe and it doesn't expose them. Okay, great. How do we address that problem? Not, okay, we're going to go out and market more heavily or some of that sort. Or it's hard to use or they don't feel this is going to. And so it's really taking your time to unpack that and 
distilling it down. And when, and when we talk about it later, I'll, I'll mention some of the stuff that I did at Bridgewater that was really powerful for this, uh, to, to take problems down to their real root cause. And then you can build up more sustainable and impactful solutions. So I, that's interesting. Why don't we shift gears here and let's talk about the most immediate step that, or the most immediate phase uh, right before you started the business. No, and that is that is Bridgewater. Uh, Bridgewater, obviously, you know, like uh, Ray Dalio with his book Principles and and you know everything that he's talked about, like the culture of Bridgewater. Why? What? 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 Can you tell us a little bit about this culture? Why is it so unique? Why is it so different? Why is everyone talking about it? What? Why is this? Well, so um, you know, Bridgewater's culture was was fascinating to me. So my experience at, at McKinsey, one of the things that also stood out to me is, um, you know, I I was un or I never saw a, a management team that I was like, wow, that's fantastic. They work perfectly together. Uh, the human element always made its way in in some way, a level of distrust, a level of um, talking behind each other's backs or whatever it might be. There was one power company that I worked for where literally after each meeting, the CFO would call me, the CEO would call the partner I was working with, and the head of strategy would call the, the associate I was working with and all complain about, can you believe she said that? And then can you believe he said this? And it's like, this, is, and this was a you know, Fortune 100 company. And I'm saying, wow, this is just dysfunctional. This can't work. And I don't want to be a part of that longer term. What was appealing to me at Bridgewater was the radical transparency concept of there is no talking behind your back. It is everything is out there. Meetings are recorded and shared, et cetera. That concept made a ton of sense. So what Ray built is was really founded on the concept of you just got to put it all out there. Just just, you know, anything you hold back is going to fester and continue to grow and it will be unaddressed. So you got to just put it all out there. Um, and, and be open about it. And I think that was really compelling to me. Um, it's, it's uncomfortable and it forces conversations that not everyone is ready to have, but it also enables you to feel confident walking in. Like, I, I know what's going on. I know what they think. I know exactly here. I'm not worried about what happened. You know, anyone here, I'm sure everyone's kind of, you walk into a room and the conversation stops like, okay, <laughs> that's not good. Um, like that, that didn't happen at Bridgewater. It was more, okay, hey, we were recording this, but now you're here, so I'm going to tell you what's going on, or whatever it is. And, um, and so that was extraordinarily appealing to me. Ray's vision there, and, and it's, it's probably not fair for me to, to share it, but it's, it, it's interesting, or I share it because I, I'm not quite qualified to say, but what Ray has done with Bridgewater, which is amazing, is they've effectively systematized markets. They, you know, and everyone has said it's impossible to say too many uh, variants, too much going on, too much complexity. There's no way you could actually systematize the way markets operate. And the Bridgewater approach built over some 40 years was to basically decompose every component of a um, key metric or um, you know commodity or whatever it is and say, oh, you know, the price of gold, what actually drive, drives the price of gold? And then what drives each of those drivers? And then what drives each of those drivers? And if you effectively keep going down until you can't go any further, uh, you can build a model that will then build that up and where the Bridgewater team spends all their time and energy is saying, OK, what are the, you know, the multiplying factors to say it's you know, demand for electronics because it's uh, on circuit boards or it's demand for jewelry or these things. And each of those are driven by these 14 things. I think Bridgewater gets something like 10 million inputs every day that then feed up to this model to synthesize out. Here's a GDP estimate. Um, you refine that over years and you actually can systematize markets. They backdate their models for 200 years and say, have we adequately predicted every kind of war, every, uh, 
you know, issue that could happen um, every downturn, every recession. They say, OK, yes, does this this um, the predictive capacity of this um, tool uh, work? So with that, I would say, you know, closer to success, you know, Ray has, has moved to say, OK, what's another in completely unpredictable, unable to manage area? And that's people. So how do I build some level of systemization around the way people make decisions? How do you build guardrails or rules to operate by that can try and eliminate some of the inconsistencies and such that might come from emotional impact and such? And so if you look at the way Ray wrote out in the principles, a lot of that is about just really letting logic uh, win the day over uh, an emotional response to something. And uh, it's hard. I mean, we have, human beings are emotional. I, I wouldn't say it's it's perfectly executed, and I think Bridgewater is growing on that front. Um, but it, conceptually, it's interesting, and it does allow a lot of a better discipline in forcing to kind of say, hold on, why am I concerned about this? Why am I not having this conversation? Why, why are we holding back on this? And really trying to unpack the key drivers behind each decision you make um, to really get better at them and identify some of your own weaknesses. And, you know, talking about decisions, the other day I was um, seeing how, for example, like when whenever they have brainstorming sessions or they, you know, have meetings, they are able to uh, rank each each one of the opinions and then everyone has access to the data and you're able to see where things are heading. Is, is that right? That's I mean, that's correct. It goes to the whole transparency. And, you know, it's been several years since I've been there. So there are new tools and such that are evolving uh, well beyond uh, what since I was there. But uh, at that time, a lot of stuff, there were, you know, we need to go into full Bridgewater discussion here, but um, there were components around, okay, who's proven track record, uh, who has a proven track record at, you know, different components, better or worse at kind of making decisions in this context. And then what do they think? And then you can use that to effectively score against, okay, Fred said this, but he's, you know, medium likelihood. And then Greg said this, but he's higher probability. So let's, you know, overweight that in a way of calibrating the, um, the different ideas or, or responses. Um, and so it's, it's an interesting approach. I'm not sure I fully agree with all of it, to be honest, but it's, um, I do think uh, what Ray is trying to do there is really build out, uh, particularly leveraging technology now, as much as possible to truly systematize and optimize decision-making output from people. Got it. And this was obviously a, an important experience for you. This was your your real introduction to cybersecurity. Is that right? It, it was. I also call it, it was kind of like the, you know, um, kind of MBA plus. It was, you know, take, take everything you've learned about how to operate a business and take it to a whole different level. Yeah. Uh, and it's interesting. I, I, you know, I've shared with one of my colleagues who I, uh, I work with there and he categorized it really well. We basically said, I'm glad I went. I'm glad I left. And, and, I, and I, I share that same opinion. It's, uh, it was an extraordinarily powerful couple of years for me there. And I really learned to think introspectively about how I address issues, how I operate. Um, and that, you know, has really yielded confidence in, in its own way and kind of being okay with and, and aware of your own weaknesses is actually confidence building because you can say, okay, that's all right. I need to get help on this. That's okay. I'm good at these things. And having that confidence was really a, a powerful component. It also taught me the, the benefits of that level of transparency and having those open conversations. It impacted uh, components with my family or even where, you know, there was something with my brother that I never brought up before that I discussed with him or things like that. And I think it, it really helped. And I've, I've pulled a lot of those cultural elements into what we're trying to build here at CyberGRX 
Um, and so I, I'm very thankful for the time I had there. I learned a lot about myself, learned a lot about um, how to, uh, to to manage a company. I also felt my time was was up there and it was uh, was ready to move on to something new. So before we, we shift gears here and, and we talk about like how you incubated uh, your idea with CyberGRX, I'd like to know, like, what was your biggest learning about yourself? Uh, it's a great question. My my biggest learning about myself is I um, was really afraid to say the words I don't know. Uh, when I was at McKinsey, it really was something where, you know, someone's paying McKinsey a million dollars a month to come you know, work on some strategy. And I'm sitting here saying, how can I possibly look this CEO in the face and say, I don't know what you're talking about? You know, why the hell would he be paying for that? So I, I fudged it, basically. I, um, I would uh, kind of nod and, and work my way around it. And unfortunately, what that did is I didn't really, I wasn't able to engage in the conversation uh, to the depth that I wanted to, that I was able to, because I was kind of keeping on the periphery, just trying not to be exposed for the fact that I didn't know what was going on. Um, and the other is I didn't learn about stuff. And so, you know, I, I didn't grow and I did lesser work. You know, one of the things that Bridgewater really uh, pushes firmly is, you know, there are times like, you know what, I don't know. I, I didn't know anything about that. It's okay. And it's remarkable how powerful that small phrase that I spent the majority of my career never saying has been. And, um, you know, in, in the cybersecurity space, which I, you know, arguably have a, a more shallow background than a lot of um, some of the entrepreneurs in the cybersecurity space, I'm constantly talking to people saying, you know what, I'm not sure about that, or that's an area I'm not familiar with, but let me understand a little bit more from you so I can engage in a thoughtful way and actually provide some input. And I can't, I mean, I really can't emphasize enough how powerful it is to truly just admit, I'm not sure, but I, I, I want to learn more. Yeah, 100%, 100%. And cyber GRX, so why don't we talk about like, what was the process of bringing this to life? Because obviously, you know, like after the experience of Bridgewater, that really, you know, I kind of like catapulted, catapulted you into, into taking the leap of faith and, and, and making it on your own. Yeah, no, and and so a little bit. So at, at Bridgewater, you know, I came in as a as a manager from my McKinsey background, and the the approach that Bridgewater uh, takes is, is that um, you you may not find in a single person what's necessary to run a department. In case you actually need subject matter expertise as well as kind of management experience or capability. And so where I came in as my first job at Bridgewater was I actually co-ran the compliance team. Uh, with a woman who had an extraordinary background, a great depth of understanding, former SEC prosecutor. Um, and she and I basically built out the strategy and I learned about compliance through that process and was able to kind of represent it and, and um, share that with our management committee. Uh, that went well. And I was then asked to lead uh, the security team. And I ran that for about three years, uh, having never dealt with security before that. So that was my introduction to, and, and I ran staff, physical and cybersecurity for Bridgewater. Uh, and that was my introduction to cybersecurity, which was our area of focus, which wanted to build pretty robust staff and physical security programs, but cyber was still growing and uh, kind of dove head first in really understanding that. One of the things that we dealt with there was kind of the constantly expanding ecosystem of vendors or suppliers that we worked with. Um, you know, our analytics team was like, we want to use this new AI tool. We want to use this, et cetera. But that's sending sensitive data each time. And we had no capacity to go and actually evaluate the security risk of some new startup or whatever it was. So we just took a couple calculated bets, actually. Um, and uh, so when I left Bridgewater, you know, that was, uh, you know, an experience that I'd had. I was actually introduced to a, a guy named Jay Leak, who at the time was the CISO 
or the chief information security officer at Blackstone. And Jay's role was to secure Blackstone, but then also ensure there was an appropriate level of security at all of Blackstone's investment or portfolio companies. Um, and he had helped place the chief information security officers at many of their larger investments, et cetera. And he held kind of a, a quarterly forum where he engaged with them about you know, issues going on, problems that they could you kind know, of address collaboratively. And one common or issue that kept coming up was they were also unable to keep pace with the exploding number of third parties that all of their businesses, albeit in retail or healthcare or infrastructure or whatever it was, everyone was using more and more third parties, vendors, suppliers, you name it. Um, and the security teams were feeling really exposed. They were not able to do adequate levels of assessments. They had no idea what was being implemented in their network, et cetera. Um, Jay looked at that and said, okay, there's no way you guys can all achieve scale individually, but why not together? Let me, let me run a quick test. And he looked and actually about, you know, he, he asked, I think it was like a hundred companies. And of that, maybe 90 of them were using ADP uh, for payroll. And of those 90, about 50 were literally sending a team to evaluate or assess ADP um, once a year at a cost of several thousand dollars each uh, to do that. He's like, this is insane. Why don't we do a single assessment at the Blackstone level? Uh, and I will then share that data with all the Blackstone portfolio companies, massive cost savings, highly much more efficient for ADP. So that seems to make sense. And so that was kind of germinating his head at the time. And he and I were connected and um, he mentioned it to me. And that's kind of where the uh, the seed for or the beginning of CyberGRX came So from. then what happened next? So he and I kind of looked at it and said, OK, this is a uh, this is a great concept. Why? Why isn't it out there yet? Uh, why aren't other people doing this? And so we, we did a bit of investigation and looked at some other concepts or products that were out there. There were some kind of standard assessment templates. There were certifications you could get, et cetera. But none of them had really achieved a level of, um, of real clear adoption. Uh, and so we actually went and met with the people who had, under, or had kind of helped found or design a lot of these different programs. Um, and part of this you know, going back to that diagnosis element is, okay, there's a problem here. This, these haven't taken off. I want to spend my time to truly understand before repeating the same mistakes that, that others might have made. Uh, and so really helping understand that. And we identified a variety of, uh, of components there, just ranging from people don't want a certification. They want to be able to dig in to understand the data behind it to, you know, if you put all of the burden of a certification on a small company that can barely afford it, um, that actually doesn't work and they'll resist it particularly if it only works for a portion of their um, customers. So you need to actually think about how do you share that cost more equitably or some of that sort. So a variety of takeaways that we were able to use to design CyberGRX. One of the key things that uh, came was, you know, people were looking for broader adoption or kind of marquee level adoption to give them confidence that it was the right decision. that They weren't taking a risk that would get them in trouble or uh, potentially expose them. So what we did is we then went out and um, built a, a group of what we call design partners up front um, who were going to help us design and build out what CyberGRX's assessment and methodology for evaluating a third party would be. Uh, and Jay was instrumental in, in creating introductions and, and helping bring on board. And these were companies like Aetna and MassMutual and uh, uh, ADP themselves, Blackstone, obviously, uh, Bloomberg, and a few others. And, um, and that is really that consortium, that group that got CyberGRX off the ground. So how, what, what, what was the, what ended up being the business model then, Fred? 
So the, the business model is pretty straightforward. It's a, uh, we do a single assessment of a company. Uh, so you, I picked on ADP earlier. We'll go do a, a cyber risk assessment of ADP in granular detail uh, to really understand the, the inner workings of their whole cyber program. Um, and, uh, and it's, it's a survey based approach. It's, it's not kind of deploying a technology, which most CPs are not comfortable with, uh, allowing something to go into, uh, their environment. This was actually working with them to truly understand what's there. We have a partnership, uh, with a leading consulting firm to help us with the validation of those responses to say, okay, you told us you have this phishing policy, show us a copy of the policy and show us how it's being implemented. Uh, and then that data resides in our exchange and it can be shared multiple times. You know, ADP was assessed 5,000 times last year. Uh, let me repeat that, 5,000 times that people kind of sent them an Excel questionnaire and said, tell me about your security program. And so with our program now, that can be answered once and shared with all those companies. And so it's, it's in their benefit as well. Our, our business models, we charge for the subscription or the consumption of that information. So we charge our customers who are typically Fortune 1,000, a couple Fortune 10 uh, even, companies who are now using CyberGRX to manage their third-party ecosystem, which can number in the tens of thousands. Uh, and they'll use our platform to gain a, or kind of access to data around those companies so they can think about uh, on an individual company or portfolio of companies basis, what risk exists and how do I use that to inform my business decision with this company. Very cool. And you have to be one of the few people that I know that has raised 9 million bucks with just a power presentation. How the hell did you do this, Fred? Well, it, it was a compelling story. Uh, I think it was, you know, the if you think about, you know, what, what a, a venture capitalist is looking to fund, um, you know, you really want to know, is there an, an established, you know, I think, what is it, maybe three things, right? It's, an, it's established um, pain. Is this a real problem? Uh, and you have kind of product market fit in that sense. Okay, there's a real problem. You've diagnosed it appropriately. So the pain was just resounding. No one liked filling these things out. No one liked receiving and reviewing them. And so the the market was ripe for some kind of disruption there. And with our design partners, we had that kind of product market fit box checked, if you will. Um, the second is you're looking at kind of total market size. The market was huge. Um, people were spending you know, millions of dollars on this. There are some banks that are spending 20 or $30 million on this alone uh, on their internal teams. Uh, and so huge and growing aggressively. Any of the estimates we saw were 20 plus percent growth and, you know, in the billions of dollars for total spend and completely fragmented market. And so market opportunity was huge. And so the only other thing we had to show was, um, demonstrate was ability to execute. Uh, and that was um, a bit of a bet on me. And then obviously with someone like Jay on board, and then I was able to bring in a couple colleagues who, uh, who really had just fantastic backgrounds. And so when you think about it, that those should scratch the majority of the itch, if you will, for a, uh, for a venture capitalist. You got you the market size established. You've demonstrated the pain and the opportunity to, to meet the, the market need. And then you had the team to execute against it. Um, and I think people were willing to take a bet. And we got a, we got a great consortium of early investors to kind of come in and allow us to really start building the company. That's amazing. Because how much capital have you guys raised today, Fred? Uh, we've raised uh, about $59 million so far um, uh, today. And obviously in, in, in different rounds. So I see A, B, C, uh, and even a venture round. So can you walk us through the different expectations through from round to round? Sure. And so we, we, we're 
atypical. You know, typically a company starts off with a seed round of some kind where you're starting to test it out, get early customers, you help show that product market fit or early uh, view. Um, ours was more of a, hey, look, this opportunity is right here in front of us. We want to jump on it. We're going to fund aggressively to go after it uh, quickly. Um, and so our A investors were taking, call it more of a seed perspective. They were basically saying, I'm going to take a bet on this. It looks like a great opportunity and, and, and let's run. Uh, and so, you know, and that included our, our A round was led by several of the you know, leading cyber uh, investment firms like, um, like 1011 Ventures or Allegis uh, Cyber uh, companies like that. And then we had a lot of strategic investors who the pain was so great for them. They, they were willing to take a bet to see what we could do. So, you know, Blackstone invested, Google Ventures invested, uh, Bloomberg Beta invested, Aetna Ventures, Mass Mutual Ventures, et cetera, um, all because they would be beneficiary, direct beneficiaries of this product. Yeah. Um, so it was worth it for them to kind of take that calculated bet. Um, once we had built out our assessment program and, uh, and really said, okay, here's how we're going to do assessment. Here's how we're going to interpret the data. And here's what a platform will begin to look like. Um, then we were able to bring in uh, someone like Bessemer Venture Partners, who is much more of, you know, ready to go when they say, okay, this makes a ton of sense to me. You guys are starting to really put the meat on the bones. Uh, that's where we can add a ton of value. And, uh, and they've been a great partner in really helping kind of take it from, yep, this seems like it's kind of wobbling along and seeming to work to now it's a really built out and stable uh, concept. And then, so that was our series B. And then as we moved into our series C, uh, we were able to bring in a company like Scale Venture Partners, who, you know, their name uh, kind of indicating their focus is like, okay, you've got something that's really starting to take off. We have the methodologies and, and the capabilities to really help you scale and, and build that out efficiently. And they're very metrics and experience driven with an incredible amount of data to basically say, okay, if you're thinking about entering into these different regions, here are the approaches to do so. Here's how you should be spending. Here's how you allocate your capital most efficiently based on what we've seen from the portfolio we work with. That's amazing. And obviously the, the journey, you know, is, uh, as we all know, is, is not a straight line. And, and obviously you guys uh, had some, some bumpy faces, you know, yourself as an entrepreneur. And I understand that one of those had to do with, with getting a little bit ahead of your guys' selves when growing the team. So tell us about this experience. Yeah, I think that was, um, you know, and one of the things is, is, as an entrepreneur, which can be you know, it's invigorating, but can be dangerous as you sit there every day dealing with this problem. It's the most important thing in the world to you. You think it's going to be just the best. How can anyone not want to, you know, wake up every morning thinking about third party cyber risk? Um, and so, you know, when we started to build out the early um, offering, you know, I and, and the team's expectation is, man, everyone is just going to love this. We're going to have to, you know, bolt the door to keep out all the demand. And so we staffed up to get ready for that, you know, and we brought out, we had our first early customers and we were going out to the market and we were ready to go. We had a team ready to complete the assessments and, you know, we had a whole customer success team, everything all built up and ready to go. Well, interestingly, not everyone wakes up excited about third-party cyber risk. And uh, we did have a little bit of our work cut out for us to, to generate the demand um, that we'd expected. And we, it was slower um, than we thought. And unfortunately, you know, when you're burning through capital, Every day, you know, carrying that big of a team, um, unfortunately, was was just not something that we could do because we didn't have the demand to support it. And so, while we went out and, and hired people over kind of a six month period, uh, we unfortunately had to have a layoff. We had to I had to cut back on about um, probably about fifteen, maybe even twenty percent of our workforce uh, because we were just well you know, too far ahead of where we needed to be at that time. And I, I got to tell you, that's you know, that's one of the worst 
experiences that um, you can go through. You know, you've asked people to kind of come and trust you on your vision and where you're going. And then six months later, say, you know, I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. That it's not going to work right now. Um, and uh, that was hard. It was it was really that was probably the the worst day that we've had uh, as a company. And I definitely personally have had at this company. I can't imagine. So who 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 do you think you needed to be at that moment in time in order to be an effective leader? I, I think you just you, you needed to be definitive. It's interesting. This yeah, I, I can look back on some of the different um, career steps I've taken and. You know, things like Bridgewater and just not hiding from the truth and being not being afraid to have that difficult conversation. Uh, it's the right thing. It was the right thing. We, we could have, you know, tried to uh, fumble along, but we had people who literally were doing, you know, had, had nothing to do because their their job, it wasn't kind of, uh, wasn't there. They didn't have the demand to fulfill it. And so um, it, it was the right thing for them. It was the right thing for the company. And just having that conversation uh, and being very honest in, and, and direct about that I think helped. I mean, we've, you know, it's interesting. I've stayed in touch with uh, many of the people who left through that process and have good relationships with them today. And I think a lot of that came from the transparency and the honesty and saying, look, here's our situation. There's not much I can do here. And this is what is necessary for the company. I can't tell you that people weren't upset that day, but over time, I think there's an appreciation and understanding for that. And so from a leadership standpoint, it really is not trying to mask it, not trying to defer responsibility or blame. It's you own it. You, you made that call. You made a mistake and you got to move forward with it. And I think hopefully that leads to a better appreciation longer term. Yeah. I mean, the facts are always going to be the facts. What matters is how you deliver them. So um, it is what it is. So, so Fred, I guess uh, for you, you know, like as, as you're, you know, leading, you know, here and, and really watching the space. Where do you think that the cybersecurity security space is really, you know, evolving as a whole? I think it's, um, I mean, it's evolving in multiple directions. You are getting just so much greater focus on cybersecurity because everything is interconnected. Everything is being recorded. Um, there, there are a few people out there who truly appreciate the profiles that are being built on them, the data that's available on them uh, from every company and, and such other. So you're seeing a lot more regulatory uh, requirements that are going to be interesting. And all that drives up an increased interest in managing your security, increased requirements to do so. Um, and, uh, you know, I think uh, I wouldn't be kind of sharing new news, but the, the deficiencies or the, the kind of the lack of available cyber talent is, is dumbfounding and will continue to grow uh, in terms of, I think in the U.S. alone, there's you know, somewhere between half a million and a million empty um, cybersecurity roles today. And that's only going to grow. And that's just that's U.S. global. It just gets bigger and bigger. Um, that's a problem. That's what a lot of these startups are trying to solve. If you look at the underlying things, they're, they're trying to figure out how do you allow people to be more efficient, do more with less or create more AI driven automation type components on what were previously manual processes. Even CyberGRX, what we're doing is, you know, it used to be a manual process where a human being has to send out an Excel file and then wait for another human being to fill it out and send it back to them and talk through and then digest it. You know, imagine doing that for a thousand companies. Um, we can take that all away in terms of our platform. And now a single person can do 10 or more times the work. Uh, and so that's the type of stuff that you're going to see in the cyber industry as it gets more and more um, kind of pervasive in terms of uh, conversation out there. Uh, the, you know, the other scary thing about this is that the threat is constantly evolving and growing. You know, every control we put in place, uh, someone is figuring out a way around that next one. And you kind of have to constantly stay ahead of it. This is, it's a dynamic and, and 
growing market, the things that were quote unquote safe, you know, months or years or even months ago are, are now, oh, well, you know, now there's a new attack for that. Now there's a new way to address that. Uh, and so, you know, I think you're, this is, this is going to be a huge forefront. I, you know, ad- advice to anyone who's thinking about a career choice is, you know, cybersecurity is hands down probably the best job security that I can think of for the next 20 plus years. Um, and kind of building and understanding that level of credibility and then potential opportunities to build and develop your own company around that. That's amazing. That's amazing, Fred. So I guess the, um, you know, one of the questions that, that I always ask the guests that come to the show is knowing what you know now, Fred, I mean, it's a, being quite, quite of a right. So knowing what you know now, you know, before, let's say if you were to, to go back in time, you know, during the days of Bridgewater where you were maybe like thinking about launching a business and, you know, what that would look like and how to do it and all of that stuff. If you had the opportunity to speak to that younger self, uh, what would be that one piece of advice before launching a business that you would give to your younger self and why, knowing what you know now? Uh, so it's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm going to answer your question in, in two ways. There's one is a, um, is if I look back on just career decisions that I've made, um, I, I until recently have, have been very safe. Um, established companies, well-respected brands uh, that opportunity. And I would have guided myself to take more risks, go do an international posting, go work for a startup. Um, there's incredible value that I got out of working for places like McKinsey and Bridgewater in terms of learning. There's also um, incredible learning that comes from, okay, we're not going to make payroll in three weeks. What are we going to do? Uh, and, and just kind of really thinking through you know, about those tangible problems and being a part of that, particularly before you have a family and kids and such. And so I I wish I'd spent more time taking more risks, doing more um, things like that in a younger age. Um, That being said, a lot of my experiences have really led to what I'm able to do today and kind of giving me that foundation, some of those experiences and talking to CEOs and such from a McKinsey standpoint and understanding how they think uh, has been has been really helpful. Um, going into, uh, to cyber GRX, um, you know, I, I think I, I believed a little of my, of our own Kool-Aid, if you will. And the early, like, oh, this is going to be easy to build this. And, you know, um, and we, you know, we'll have this up here. We'll have a hundred customers by the end of the year type of thing. And I think there was an element of, of focusing a bit more on knowing what you don't know and planning for those eventualities or issues that you have not forecast. Um, you know, I've, you know, been lucky enough to have availability of capital, capital to really build out a cushion that guides us through or allows us to make the right decisions for the business and weather issues or things that might come up um, at a little bit greater dilution. Um, but at the same time, it actually gives much greater confidence and ability for us to stick to the vision of the strategy that we're on. And I think that um, is something I learned kind of through the journey. But uh, early on, we we're like, oh, we'll raise a series A and we're done. Like, huh, I look back on that. It's almost comical. So I guess to follow up on that, you know, especially for the folks that are thinking about their their own financing, you know, efforts, would you, would if, if I had to ask, you know, what are your thoughts on either raising what you need or raising all that you can get, you know, what would be your answer to that? Yeah, it, it's, um, it's probably in between. Uh, and so one is that part of the job as a CEO is you're effectively always fundraising, even when you're not. Um, and, you know, it's important to keep relationships out there to make sure people are aware of who you are. So even if you just just completed a round, it's it's continue to build those longer term relationships so that when you actually do need capital, it's not the first time you're talking to someone. It's, it's critical that they have that relationship, that trust um, 
that's come through, you know, scale, I'd gotten to know them two years earlier and just through kind of conversations and then kind of built that up so that when we were time to raise that next round, uh, that was an easy conversation versus let me tell you who I am. Um, so that's a, a critical piece in terms of taking capital. You know, you typically will have a sense of what you want. Um, and then, you know, I, I have erred on, Hey, let's take a little bit more. I'm not gonna say all you can get, because sometimes that's probably not necessary. And the last thing you want to do is over dilute yourself with a huge balance sheet when not necessary. You don't have a use for it, but you know, saying, okay, here's my plan. Now let me expect it to go South. What do I need to get through to get me back to a good spot? Um, and maybe that's, you know, working with, um, a bank to get a line of credit or some of that sort, or it's, you know, raising additional, little additional extra capital. Um, but I would always go for a little bit more and I'd always take that round kind of when you don't right before you need it. Like we've also been lucky enough to raise, um, our last two rounds in a preemptive capacity where it's, you know, before we were on that, okay, we've got six months left. We've got to start raising. We, we still had money in the bank and, um, but it made sense. You know what? It's available now. Um, it's going to be enough and we have good reasonable use for it. Let's, let's take it versus waiting for a potentially higher valuation, you know, 12 months from now, uh, and putting a lot of the stuff at risk. Very interesting point uh, there, Fred, and very valid. So for the folks that, that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi, Fred? That way, you know, happy to, happy to talk to anyone in particular, uh, on if they're interested in third-party risk, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, cybergrx.com. Uh, any, any way on that sense and happy to talk both about the business or if people have questions about uh, building a company, happy to connect on LinkedIn. Fantastic. Well, Fred, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It's been my pleasure. Really appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember, that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.